When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what's going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wise Cracks Movie Podcast. Show me the golden ticket, show me the golden ticket, show me the golden chance to podcast with Austin and Michael Burns. Kind of wow. Fun. Oh, hell yeah. Well done with that one. What up, everybody? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Raymond in his lovely pipes and rhyming <laughs> yeah, skills. sure. I don't know about rhyming. I love Raymond's pipes. He's <laughs> great going pipes. everybody? And we've got Michael. What's up, Michael? Hey, I, I might not have golden pipes, but I'm excited to talk about this movie. Which is? Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Right? That is Is that right. the title? Is this that the is, title? Yeah. That's, yep. that's the one. Not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is the title of the Roald Dahl book. They decided to change it because I guess they thought that Charlie was like insensitive because there was like the Vietnam War going on and Charlie had like bad connotation. I don't know. Oh, we can ask Raymond about this. Because this is Raymond's family was reasons. very upset about this. You know, you go to the Wikipedia for this movie and there's a whole section about how the Dahl family was not impressed. I mean, Roald Dahl is one of my favorite author, like childhood authors, like bfg james the giant peach like those things were like life-changing for me i never read charlie and the chocolate factory but i have seen this film and of course then the more recent film uh many 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 times um it's raymond's favorite film of all time we're talking about willy wonka and the chocolate factory directed by mel stewart starring the incomparable god bless him love him with every fiber of my being gene wilder albertson oh okay (laughs) yeah jack albertson everybody Peter Ostrom, my favorite young child actor ever. Um, it's Gene Wilder, Jack Albertson, Peter Ostrom, Roy Kinnear, Denise Nickerson, Leonard Stone, Julie Don Cole. I don't know any of these names, but I do know Gene Wilder. So we can talk about the cast because actually the cast is pretty lovely. Um, so, yeah, uh, as always, we'll go around and do first impressions. We'll talk about what it was like the first time we watched this film. What's it been like on repeated viewings? What was it like the most recent time that we revisited it? I do want to just, you know, just put it out there so that we're not ignoring the elephant in the room. This is our second to last show. This is our second to last show, everybody. Can we just give a round of applause for five years? Wow. Thank you, I think in, I think. Is this would be the the penultimate as well, right? I learned the word penultimate very late in life. Penultimate, yeah. Penult, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 fancy stuff. It's well, this is the and, penultimate yeah. episode. Let me say it's a real. Uh, I mean, this. I, I know my my tone sounds like I'm being sarcastic or something right now. Um, uh, very huge honor to be here. I'm sad that Ryan's not here, but I'm honored to fill his shoes right now. Uh, you know, jumping on this podcast semi regularly for the past few years has, has been a real delight. And even though it is, like, I guess technically work for me, it always feels like it's something else, like it's something fun. Like, I look forward to it the days I get to do this. Um, and, and getting to talk to you guys here is great. And just the being in this place where I, you know, get to talk to Austin, who I've known for over a decade, um, someone who, God, well over a decade, someone who in many cases, like, showed me good movies um, when I was just still, like, Hey man, do you, do you want to watch Wedding Crashers again? Or, or I have Forty Year Old Virgin. Those are the two <laughs> movies I've seen. Um, so really special to be here and talk to him about that. And Raymond, someone who uh, 
one of those people you meet doing this stuff and is truly a Raymond's probably my favorite person who I've still never met in real life. If I had to really put a list of people who I don't think I've met in life. Yeah, it's crazy. I think we we have to get together sometime. Yeah, I think we were in a room watching Teton once. I think we might have figured out after the fact, but weren't aware that we were both in the same room. Um, But very special. And, and, you know, worth saying as well, uh, you know, truly the only reason I I work at Wisecrack is is because of Austin. Um, Austin's the first person that introduced me to, to anyone over here, and he is the sort of guy that takes initiative, gets to know folks. And I'm the sort of guy that sits in the corner and is like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to talk to people. No one, no one wants to talk to me. So, uh, just not to make this about me at all, but just very special to be here with you all. Uh, the, the work you do is amazing. And I had a period maybe five or six months ago, I was like, I'm going to listen to more movie podcast. And, and there's not a lot of good ones. You know, I think I've been spoiled yeah. by listening to and coming on show me the meaning. You all just do something very special and very good. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm here as a, as a, a co-host today, but a, as a fan of this and a fan of you guys. So excited to be here, but sorry if I, if I made it a bummer, let's talk about a really no, weird movie. No, no that was, uh, no. That, that was very, very thoughtful. Very kind of you, man. It's, it's a pleasure to, uh, to share the mic with you, even though we haven't met. And, um, I mean, I how, feel how basically tall are the you, same. Raymond? Uh, six foot four. Seriously? No, you're not. Yeah. Awesome. God damn it. Would you, awesome. would you have had thing? Raymond at 6'4"? Is there any world where you'd have Raymond no. at 6'4"? No. Jesus. This is the same shit that happened what? when the first time I met Ryan. Oh, really? Ryan, I th- I didn't realize that Ryan was like 6'3". And the first time, the only time I ever met Ryan and Jared, actually, it, both of them were like giants compared oh, to what I thought. Oh, I thought Alec, they were both... too. <laughs> I, I'm, and Alec. I, I'm like the shortest man who's ever done anything at Wisecrack, and I'm, I'm a solid six. Dude. Yeah, I'm six foot. I feel I'm like, I'm, I'm shorter too. I, We're Mike, I would I would say you're a solid eight at least. <laughs> wow. Oh, do you it's hear those that? Eyes. No, I'm scared. It's those eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! No, honestly, I what? I love this fucking Why podcast did you ask that? so much. Just, be, just because it was such a weird thing when you met Ryan. <laughs> what made you think of that? About well, no, Michael asked it I first asked, about yeah. your height. Oh, oh, sure. What what made what prompted that? I think about it a never lot. Met. I think about this when I people that you don't see in life, like you know. I think even producer Matt, the first time I saw him in the studio, taller than I would have thought. How tall are you? How tall is Matt? <laughs> Just getting into it, Matt. Yeah, Matt, we're... What you... I had Matt. If he's at, been I had sleeping Matt a long three. time and his vertebrae is flattened out. Um, <laughs> um, but, so, this, but sorry for derailing uh, this, and having this the high is conversation. The conver- everyone's so excited. The second Let, to last episode, to our, the, hard, our, the hard-hitting no. movie question. Okay, it's, we got to get back this. to our what starting we'll shooting guard, Raymond we're gonna, Kramer. We're gonna jump. In. Yeah, that's right. Now give the ball to our shooting guard, uh, Raymond. <laughs> no, no, hold on one second. Um, okay, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna jump into the film. Stay to the end of the episode because we're gonna talk a little bit about what this means that what that this podcast, Show Me the Meaning, is ending. Like, what is the future for us as individuals? Individuals for this brand and then Raymond and I have some exciting stuff that we are going to be kind of announcing a little bit more over the next week or so about what we're going to be doing kind of post show me the meaning but in the film podcast space so stay to the I end see, of the I'm podcast gonna that, we got to talk I'm about just gonna earmuff it the whole time yeah. you know company man here so I'll be I'll be earmuffing it <laughs> um but so let's go around first impressions Raymond this was your choice talk about the magic that is Willy Wonka um I mean you say first impressions, but this movie feels like a part of my DNA. Uh, like, and I, I don't mean to sound hyperbolic. Like, I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of movies as a kid. I was a fan of this movie, 
and I I would say I I easily watched it at least one or two times a week for probably seven years. It, it, wow. I mean, it's it, it, it's it's just some some of my earliest memories. We had I had a VHS uh, tape that was uh, the Adam West Batman movie. Um, that was the first half of the tape, and then the second half was uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And I, I still remember, as much as I enjoy the Adam West Batman stuff, uh, a lot of the time I would just have to fast forward through that first movie to get to this one, and it would kind of start a little bit into the credits of all that beautiful chocolate rolling off the line. And Yeah, that's, and, it's such a great opening sequence. Yeah, and I still have, like, part of <sighs> part of my visual memory of this movie is sort of like the end credits of Batman bleeding into tracking and then all of this chocolate like emerging from the static on the TV. And it's just one of those things where immediately, immediately you're just kind of like, I'm, I'm in a different world now. And it's, it's just one of those things that, um, you know what I I could, uh, I mentioned in our chat, I could monologue about this movie for an hour. Like if both of you guys had, had to cancel at the last minute and uh, I'll, I'll, Mm. I'll do my best to, uh, to keep my enthusiasm on a little bit of a leash so we're, we're not here all night. Mm. But there, there is something wonderful about this film. You know, I, I think Mel, Mel Stewart put it in uh, an interview where he said that he, he wanted to make a family film in the most literal sense, not just a children's film. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't talk down to children. It doesn't condescend. It doesn't pander. And it's something that I find is, is really magical. This may be a trite observation, but when you're a kid, you can watch it from Charlie's perspective as you get a little older, you can watch it from Willy Wonka's perspective. And mm. I imagine as you get even older, you can probably watch it from uh, uh, Grandpa Joe's Grandpa perspective. Joe. And, and, you yeah. know, looking looking back on, on youth and the splendor and the joy of it and hopefully still feel a little uh, a little bit of that spark. So it's, it's a movie that mm. I have just always loved. It's a movie that I think I always will love. And uh, I'm really eager to, uh, to talk about it tonight. Cool. Yeah, what about you, Michael? Yeah, I, I honestly don't think I'd watched this movie since I, I was a child, um, all the way through at least. Oh, wow. I, I might have, you know, I, I think I popped mm. in when it's been on TV or, or whatnot a few times. Um, totally forgot how weird of a movie it is, and I mean weird <laughs> in, a, in a positive way to be clear. But the world this movie is set in is is fascinating and bizarre, mm. and we're clearly in Germany, but our teachers are English, but but some of us are are, are American or Canadian mm-hmm. or something like that. We got a little <laughs> bit of everything. <laughs> we have a world media infrastructure that's obsessed with, mm. with one guy making chocolate. We have, a I think, a Uruguayan swin, uh, swindler who tries to, to get their way in there. We have, I mean... Oh, we'll I, talk more about him. Yeah, we'll talk more about that. Um, I'm going to save the line of this movie that made me have to pause because I was laughing so hard and couldn't stop <laughs> laughing. But I don't know. It just it's, it's doing a lot of interesting things. I think there's a way to read this movie as like, and not to get, I mean, this is, I guess, an Austin's wheelhouse, but not to put on my like sort of psychoanalytic film criticism hat. But I was just halfway through. I was like, is this movie just about mass psychosis? And, and like the cons- mm. the mass psychosis of consumerism mixed with like media and capitalism and what that does to our brains and these these weird yes. people yeah I mean it's just like yes is the answer yeah but like I, and I just hadn't thought of that before and it hit me I was like oh that's that's what we're doing here um, it's very fun and then I yeah I, I I had a great time watching it and I do think what Raymond said is very poignant. That this is a movie you could you could 
watch with a seven-year-old. You could watch it as an adult. You could watch it as an, an old man, as a Grandpa Joe. Real tough look for the other three grandparents, by the way, because Charlie's like, mm, yeah, they, mm, fuck y'all, they stay have a in tough bed. Time. They catch a lot of shade, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, um, great. And now, and now I guess it set me up to be real excited about the Timothy Chalamet prequel. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, Austin, how about you? Yeah, I mean, kind of like Raymond, I, I've seen this movie a ton. It is just a part of my childhood. It's been a while since I've seen this. It's also been a part of my kind of my adulthood, I guess, till now as well. But it's been probably about a decade since I've seen it. Um, and I just had a huge fucking childhood giddy smile on my face this time that I watched it. Like, my girl was even looking at me like, is this what it's going to be like? I'm like, yeah, I guess. I didn't realize that I was going to be so giddy about it. But that opening sequence with all the chocolate, I love what Michael said about this weird world that it sets up. I'd never really paid attention to how weird the world is. It's like a non-world. It's like a utopia in the sense that it doesn't really exist, but everybody is obsessed with and gets just buys into this this psychosis, if you will, this, this mass hysteria of wonkamania because how simple of a world is it and how beautiful kind of is it that chocolate just makes everything better, that candy just makes everything better. And it's probably a little bit of like a, a sort of like parochial, like the small town, everyone just goes to the local candy shop after school and school closes down when there's like the really exciting news about the local chocolate person, you know and it's like, so there's like this really cute like small thing, but at the same time then it opens up into like this global critique of the industrial capitalist, which is, you know, the Veruca's dad, and then the critique of the TV kid who's sitting there just, you know, like, amusing yeah. himself to death. Hello, Neil Postman. And then there's, like, the critique of... um uh, uh, the the fast talking car salesman in small town America, who's like, you know, that's like the small town businessman who's trying to like swindle you, you know, and he's just this fast talking salesman. And then you have all these different sort of like microcosms of global capitalism, and then you have the super fucking poor Charlie and his family, and it's it's about you know the 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 kind of class divisions I think um, I don't know I think there's a lot there that we could really start to peel apart that I never really paid attention to on previous viewings um, and and I still didn't lose the magic from everything that I attached to in this film you know the chocolate room which I tweeted about which I, I want to hear Raymond tell us more about because <laughs> the chocolate room is magnificent to me and that song that Gene Wilder song about the imagination it, it gets me and I even cried with Cheer Up Charlie when the mom is singing Cheer Up Charlie I was like oh fuck I got teary eyed you know yeah. so there's a lot to talk about I think that it's got some interesting things to say about the world I think it creates an interesting world and in so doing that's what makes its critique of the world quite interesting and then there's maybe some heavy handed moralism too that is quite maybe leaning into like the conservative type of way of thinking about things you know like don't be a glutton and listen to your parents because your parents know best and um, and so there's some really interesting things that this film is kind of teaching us while maintaining this magic that makes it enjoyable to the hilt. So yeah. I, I, I I think this is a, a fantastic film. I love it. And um, if I ever have kids, I would definitely make sure that I introduce this one. Nice. Can I just add too, I, I totally forgot how psychedelic yeah. it is aesthetically. Yeah. Um, it's so obvious. And some of the scenes are just incredibly so. And that was very fun to kind of, uh, to, to revisit at that point. It seems like it's, you know, remind you of like a, 
what like sergeant pepper's beetles type vibes especially when they're <laughs> on the boat in the tunnel so yeah yeah or like some fucking early 70s music led zeppelin music video where they've just got like fucking tie-dye swirls in the well, background yeah. or some shit like, like that very like You're san like, francisco late 60s early 70s like <laughs> yeah that that scene for sure and it's wild how much that made it into it and like the aesthetics of the song sequences all of a sudden we have like text on screen and a variety of boxes like it's just yeah it, it's great i'm sorry i'm just i know we have a structure to things here and i'm, I'm getting ahead of it so i'm gonna shut up bro this we is, got two this episodes is a good sign. i feel like we're all super enthusiastic you know i know Let, let's do this let's throw a curveball into the structure of things since raymond can monologue about this film forever oh, hey boy. raymond will you give us a synopsis off the top of your head can you give us a three to five minute synopsis of what this film is you know i don't know about three to five minute because i i don't think that's necessary i imagine that a okay. lot of folks have have seen this one and uh you know this is this is one of those childhood classics but basically uh, there's there's a young man uh, named Charlie Bucket uh, who gets swept up in Wonka mania when uh, the eccentric local uh, reclusive chocolatier Willy Wonka devises this scheme to open up his factory to five lucky golden ticket winners. And uh, along with four other paragons of... Uh, uh, what's, what's the opposite of virtue? Each of the kids is modeled after one of the seven deadly sins. Vice? Oh yeah, so. yeah, and nice. and uh, as as they are permitted through the doors of uh, of Wonka's factory, unbeknownst to them, uh, they fall victim to several several tests and temptations. Um, in in what is like we alluded to, kind of a uh, kind of a morality tale, um, but ultimately uh, there's sort of a, a decency and an honor that wins out, um, and eventually, spoiler alert. Uh, Charlie is bequeathed to the factory, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, if you if you haven't seen this film, uh, I'm thanks for listening. I guess, <laughs> but um, you you really you really owe it to yourself to uh, to pause the podcast and and give it a watch because it's a it's it's a timeless time honored classic for a reason. Mm, absolutely. All right, but before we continue, we got to give a shout out to our sponsor of this week's episode, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution, providing an unlimited library of over 1 million royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, images, etc., etc., and all through cost-effective subscription plans. The cool thing about Storyblocks is that you basically get unlimited all-access to uh, unlimited downloads and everything in their library if you get their all-access plan. And you can try out multiple options quickly so that you can basically create the exact thing that you want and you don't have to worry about paying extra fees because you got access to the entire set of goodies that they've got for you. So you can create more video and you can bring your stories to life without sacrificing vision due to time or budget or resources. It's really something that every creator should have. So make sure you go to storyblocks.com wisecrack so you can check out everything they have. I use them. Wisecrack, we use them on the main YouTube channel. So go to storyblocks.com slash wisecrack and you can learn all about what Storyblocks has to offer. Storyblocks.com slash wisecrack or click the link below. All right, back to the show. Okay, so let's start jumping into this film. Um, Raymond, first things first, what do you want to say about this film? What do I want to say about, I mean, oh boy. This this is one of those things when you uh, when you get an assignment at school and they say write about whatever you want to write about and it's paralyzing. <laughs> you get the sort yes. of like analysis paralysis, paralysis of choice. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I will say uh, just just to uh, to start off, uh, our good friend Dude Abides reached out on Twitter, Love saying he he wanted some more background on uh, the tunnel sequence. As as Austin mentioned, I I offered a little bit of trivia about the um, the chocolate room on Twitter, and the tunnel sequence is one of those like wonderful uh, kind of iconic indelible moments in in uh, family film history because it does really push the boundaries of <laughs> what constitutes a family film um a hundred percent and my he, girl was even like she's like i wouldn't have been able to watch this as a child <laughs> sure. she was like i would have been fucking fucked up terrified um, yeah she was no mike tv then um but, uh, <laughs> uh yeah dude dude abides asked on twitter uh whose idea that was and that's actually in the book the the raw doll book charlie and the chocolate factory um okay it's a lot more menacing in the movie um in in the book mm. wonka's far less menacing just in general he's a lot more impish he's like very kind of hyperactive and and sort of flitty and in the uh, the run up to the tunnel sequence, I remember he gives there's there's a, a bit in one of the Harry Potter books where he eats some chocolate and it has this sort of like rejuvenating effect. And there's kind of a similar passage in in uh, in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wonka kind of scoops up a mug of chocolate from the river and hands it to Charlie to kind of uh, brighten his spirits a little bit. He's far more benevolent um, in in the book, but in in this one. The sequence is essentially lifted from from the uh, source material, even down to the the sort of poem that Gene Wilder goes off on. But the poem is far like far more manic than a lot of folks anticipated. Denise Nickerson, who plays Violet Beauregard in this film, said that she was like legitimately concerned that they were going to be hurt in that tunnel because uh, Gene, Gene Wilder is just like he's so it's such an inspired performance across the board. But in that scene especially, he goes to some some really insane heights. Um, but yeah, the, like the stuff that's projected on the wall, that's like the tunnels of Munich. Um, Mel Stewart like drove through and took footage at different, uh, at different uh, frame rates of the, the, the Munich tunnels to kind of communicate the boat passing more quickly and more quickly. And then all of those images that he cuts into it, like one is a chicken getting its head yeah. cut off. There's like a yeah. fucking yeah. big caterpillar crawling over someone's mouth. So that man is actually a friend of Mel Stewart, Waylon Green, who wrote The Wild Bunch, which I know is a, uh, a no favorite of yours, shit. Austin. Yeah. Um, it's, it, so the, hmm. th- that sequence is like, it's, it, it's very weird and psychedelic and frightening in its way, but there is this kind of stroke of genius that I think this movie often has in its rhythm and its construction, which is that it like takes you right up to the line. But then as soon as someone like really registers a complaint, you know, Wonka, this has gone far enough, quite right, sir, stop the boat. And it goes from like this psychedelic light show to just the lights are on and we're here. Where? There. And it's just like immediately the bubble bursts. They all just rush off of the boat and they're just like, fuck this. Like we just, there's Hmm. only, as he says at the beginning of the, the tour, you've got to go forward to go back. And there is this sense of inevitability as they continue that like, as things get crazier and crazier and more menacing and more menacing, there's still this sense of obligation that there's really, there is no escape hatch. You just kind of have to lash yourself to the beast. And hopefully you can trust yourself to make it through all right, but quite clearly mm. most of these kids can't yeah mm. so this is part it, the way that i was thinking about it was that this was like a test of their mental fortitude right um one to see how much were they willing to to indulge in the madness of this 
Factory that is all about the imagination. He just did his whole fucking song five minutes ago about the imagination and changing the world and all this other stuff. And these people are people who have very clear attachments to certain roles in their life. And coming into the factory, it's almost like he's forcing them to get rid of those roles because remember, each of them are also still considering, and I think we're meant to assume that all of them are inclined to take Slugworth's deal. They've all been made the offer. And they've all been made the offer, and I think that they're even going to do it. You know, there's that one bit where uh, TV, what's Mike TV looks at his mom when they talk about Slugworth. Like, hey, just get a little extra. And then Veruca crosses her fingers behind her back. Yeah. So I kind of was under the impression that they're all fucking already bought in. So the idea is not only is it a test of their moral fiber, but it's also like a sort of, for lack of a better term, a kind of like deconstruction of their roles and their selves by letting this madman who doesn't really fit in the 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 logic of the world outside following them to let them go into it and that's what the role of the psychedelic tunnel is all about it's fucking chaos and death and horror and just a shock and get you out of it like you would be if you were in a psychedelic trip and then when you come back you can you can really buy in even more to a sort of like re-scrambling or a sort of reordering if you will of of the world like that's kind of what i was thinking yeah and there's there's a really wonderful disorienting effect of the film that uh, not only these characters being kind of lured deeper and deeper into this you know it's 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 the garden of eden in for all intents and purposes but it just becomes this kind of labyrinth um obviously more of a moral labyrinth but at at the beginning of the film there's um uh one of the things i mentioned on twitter is that uh, as they walk into the the chocolate room they rolled on the actor's actual reactions as they saw that set for the first time. Yeah. That's a trick that they deploy throughout the film. So you can actually see the actors getting like visibly distressed, <laughs> like along with their characters so much so that like the, one of the first uh, rooms that he takes them into the one that has one door and they all cram in and they start banging around to try and find the second door before ultimately going back the way that they came. So based on all of their wardrobe fittings, the set designers created that set to basically be exactly big enough to fit all 11 of their measurements. Jesus. And as they're just like cramming up against each other, like you can see the walls rattling in that room. Like they are distressed in a way that like even the professional actors, you know, it's not just the kids who are being thrown for a loop. But then like near the end when Wonka... uh, castigates charlie for stealing fizzy lifting drinks every time they had rehearsed that scene together he had been much more gentle in his you know his reprimand and saying like you understand you broke the rules blah 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 blah. and then when the cameras rolled he fucking explodes and they keep doing this thing that not only as filmmakers but it's like woven into the fabric of the character like a very a very um well-known anecdote about this film. You really can't read much about this film without reading about this at some point. It's in it's in Mel Stewart's book. It's in Gene Wilder's book that it was Gene Wilder's idea to come out with a cane at the beginning. And then he executes that somersault. And to him, he, he was like, the idea that I'm trying to communicate is that from this moment on, you will never know if I'm telling the truth or lying. And I think it is really tempting to read this film as a a work of pure fantasy, of pure imagination. But I do think there's a lot throughout it that maybe we can unpack that is like 
not as it's presented. That in at least in my interpretation of this movie, and I know a lot of people do not jive with this interpretation, I think most of the stuff that's happening within these walls is all just a show. That this is for Wonka's amusement first and foremost. None of these kids are in really like serious danger or harm. Now obviously like the one kid does shrink, the other kid does blow up into a blueberry, but like I assume he has contingencies for this. He seems to be speaking in earnest when he tells Charlie, like, they'll return to their terrible old selves. And there, there is a degree to which I, when I watch this movie, because to, to accept it on its face is at, at best, Wonka's an asshole. At worst, he's like a fucking slave owner. Um, and I, I genuinely think that this movie, maybe it's just because of that dichotomy. I'm more inclined to read this all as a big production that's orchestrated by an eccentric dickhead that like, I don't personally believe Oompa Loompas are real. I think he's just an asshole who thought he would be able to make all of these inquisitive rubes kind of scratch their heads when he presented these little people all made and done up you know, making the chocolate and stuff like it all just feels like a big show to me. But I am I am curious what you guys think about it, because mm. I I don't necessarily think that negates the greater sort of underlying morality of the film. I want to believe that Loompa Land is real. Yeah, because uh, I want to believe I want to believe that this world that we are given from from when the opening credits roll is not the world that we currently live in. It's like a different timeline. And not everybody has access to Loompa Land because most people are trapped within their kind of puny, small ways of living. And so that's why the one who's like, I'm a geography teacher. I know there's no fucking Loompa Land or whatever. And he's like, no. He's like, you know all about the horn swagglers. And then he even, you know, the bit when they're when they're licking the wallpaper and he's like, the snozberries taste like snozberries. And um and Veruca's like, what's a snozberry? And he says something along the lines of like, like we, we, are the music we make, and we are the, we are the, we are the music dreams. makers and we are the dreamers. Idea being we create our own realities. We have created our own realities. This is the reality that I've created. I've created snozberries because I have the power to do this. So there's this very different world. There's this world of almost irreality, not unreality or non-reality, but it's like a it's like a different type of of reality. So I kind of I want to believe that there's a Loompa Land. There's there's a great Mel Stewart quote to that effect where everyone asked him why the Wonka's office is all cut in half. And yeah. his reasoning for that was like, well, I just couldn't really imagine ending this big fantastic movie in a plain old office. And when they were like, well, but what's like the, the symbolic reason of it? He's like, I don't know. It's just it's just weird. And they said, well, that doesn't make any <laughs> sense. And his response was, yeah, but it makes great nonsense. And yeah, there's there's some real uh, Lewis Carroll illusions in this. And I was thinking a lot about like the nonsensical aspects of yeah, that I was really into. And I think he even quotes Lewis Carroll at at one point. Um, I'm not sure. But I was like, is that a Lewis Carroll quote? And I didn't Google it, but I should have. I, I kind of think here, here's this. You mentioned the labyrinth just a second ago. What if we look at him as a sort of Daedalus type of figure? Like he's the architect of this maze that that entraps you know maybe the monsters of the unconscious or some shit like that it, but we don't even have to go that far but it's this maze that is designed as a test and so when everyone comes through it he's the architect that has so cleverly devised this maze this world he's the music maker he's he's the one who's like you know if you want to dream another world just do it right so in his mind he has this incredible power as an architect of 
uh, other forms of reality and he's created this world but he's trapped himself right and he can't get out so the only way that he can get out is to get somebody else to help him out by having them take over and it can't be somebody who is an industrialist so it couldn't be Veruca's dad it can't be a car salesman it can't be somebody who's obsessed with the amusement of television it has to be somebody who has a pure heart right and I think that's maybe one of the ways that we could look at this Michael I, I you haven't said anything but you, you did the lean in like you were going to contribute something oh no you just got to stretch, stretch my back out I've, I've been in bed for 20 <laughs> years so uh, you know I, have, I don't move much <laughs> Um, no, I think I agree. I definitely read it. I, I was reading the film as I watched it this morning with a sort of like slight satirical lens um, in terms of the mm. world they were building. And, and then I definitely got a little bit of that sense of like that, that Wonka is creating a world that is negating the kind of like banality and emptiness of the world outside. And, you know, when he says like, there's so little to do and so much time before he then, you know, corrects it. I think like that's what the outside world seems like um, that, that there's all these people like what does it say about a world that everyone on the goddamn planet is obsessed with the chocolate factory that even their teachers will like cancel classes so that the kids can go get chocolate bars. There, there's there's like no no value beyond the surface level in this world. And you get the sense that he hates it. Um, and is retreated mm. from that to try to create something else. And I think there is, you know, that's a, that's a thing. Like that, that wild people who feel uninspired by the reality they're in try to create a different reality that's mm. doing something better than that. And I think that it was almost about like pulling in someone who also wanted that. Because, you know, everyone else, all the other kids, they're crushing it in this world. By, by some metrics, you mm. know, whether it just means they get to eat all the sausage or they watch TV whenever they want or whatever it might be. Um, and and you have Charlie's life who's just fucking horrible. It's, it's sort of showing you the like yeah. crass, exploited underside of this world. And, and I think it's interesting that then that's who Willie finds his sort of like younger counterpart in this person who also has no need for or love for the worlds that exist outside those gates. Mm. Yeah, and and Charlie, Charlie will come to love the factory, and will come to love the making process, the invention process, the artistic process, which is is separate from mass manufacturing and consumption, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, I think it's that's like art for art's sake versus art uh, as right. commodity, and I think it's interesting that in so many of those scenes, Willie is making stuff, messing with stuff that doesn't seem at all prepped for consumption, but that's what he's like fascinated about. It's never he doesn't <laughs> yeah, take yeah. them to some place where he's like, and here's how we make the commercial chocolate bar. I think I think that's a great point, Michael, that there is, you know, as Charlie relates, I don't care much for chocolate, whether or not he's just trying to save face in front of the other students. At, I felt that having at having only opened, you know, a couple chocolate bars throughout this uh uh in Mr. Turkentine's words, the recent unpleasantness there, there is this notion you get that like, um, yeah, I really like that that sort of art for art's sake thing. That this, there, there is a sense that all of this, all of this absurdity beyond the walls and what have you. There is this real, just fundamental joy of creation within within the walls of the factory, and that there is a few surprises around every corner, and and you do get this sense of like. 
not necessarily that like Wonka resents his renown um, or resents his fame or success in any way, but just that candy is much more like a canvas to him after a fashion. Like it, it, it allows him to just sort of put, put his, you know, his dreams, his imagination out there in, in a form that is like quite literally digestible and enjoyed by a lot of people even though, like, the most that we see him do throughout, like, he occasionally eats, like, you know, some little some little mints or candies here and there. We see him drink a bit of tea. Well, but it, you, it's interesting, you too, that You don't get the candy sense has... that he's, like, a big candy fiend yeah. or whatever. And I think there's also the sense where candy has no purpose. Like, candy has no dietary health purpose at all. I know I sound like a nerd right now. I actually hate candy. But he's <laughs> making a thing that's useless. It, it brings momentary mm. joy. And that's it. That's what the thing does. Uh, he's not investing in a thing that has some sort of necessary feature or function. He's investing in something that like brings momentary joy largely to like young people looking for a break. Yeah, quite the opposite. Like if if he's to be taken at his word about what the everlasting gobstoppers are and they're not just a MacGuffin that he's planning to, you know, have these kids expose their their deeper selves, like that is not a good move for a horrible capitalist. Idea. Yeah, <laughs> like giving kids a candy that will will never shrink or will never melt or what have you. Um, you know, it is it is one of those things. Like Austin at the beginning, you you kind of said just quite brusquely, like, "Yes, this is this is about capitalism. Yes, this is about my commodification of of joy and pleasure and what have you." And I do I do think that's true, but in there there is a sense that. Like once once again, if no one was buying these candies, you still get the idea that like there is something that he's trying to work towards. There is some there's some kind of you know, I guess pure imagination is the best way to put it. That he's he's trying to unveil or or kind of uh, what whatever the the uh, verb form of alchemy is. You know? Yeah, it's like trying to make the world weird. It reminds me of a. This thing that wasn't that cool, but there was a thing years ago people in New York did, and I think it was called like improv everywhere. I know you you want to end your life sure. since I've said that phrase, but it was a group of like actors and comedians and stuff that would set up these elaborate social like pranks or things like not quite um what's that thing that would invisible happen? theater yeah like stuff like that to to kind of make the world weird and wonderful again. Some of the stuff that is too stupid, some of it's kind of cool, and you just get the vibe that this is someone whose primary interest is injecting wonder and weirdness and surrealism into an otherwise flat world. Yeah, it's kind of like there's like a Dadaist element to this, maybe. You know, just kind of like an intentional fucking with of the system. Yeah. Um, For what purpose? Like, I'm trying to think here. Like, do we think that Wonka really believes that his candy has some sort of value in the world? Like... Or is he maybe even – and so that's like one one extreme is that he's like – he really believes that his creations have value. The other side is that he thinks that it's been totally distorted and he's like, I'm going to create the everlasting gobstopper. And not only will it fuck up Slugworth, but it's going to fuck up everything and then I can just concentrate on my inventions. Like that would be the – like the, the total like grenade, like the system has taken over. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So is it like – those would be like the two extremes and it might be somewhere kind of like in between those two poles – but I'm trying to figure out, like, what do we think Wonka 
Wonka thinks. And in this world, are we to think maybe that maybe in our world, chocolate and and sweets, you know, are like just fleeting pleasures that don't have any sort of value. But in this world, they do. And maybe not just in the sense of it being like satirical because the, the sweets are like a bastardization of hedonist culture, but rather that there's actually something really joyful that Wonka believes he's doing by giving chocolate to people, by giving them happiness or something. And 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 that's where the tension lies. I, I, don't, I don't know which it is. It's, it's interesting you say that because there is this kind of like folkloric quality that surrounds Wonka before he even starts the 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 ticket uh sweepstakes Wonka mania yeah yeah yeah. and you kind of there is a question at the center of it because like all the skits that we see of the world going crazy with Wonka mania and the queen bidding on the last uh, box of Wonka bars (laughs) and the woman withholding it as ransom all of this stuff of like how the, yeah how this stuff is like corrupting the minds of adults in this very un, in all these unique ways um it it does beg the question of like is the world turning upside down for the chocolate or do they just want the tickets and there there are scenes i think at the beginning of the film that are kind of instructive in that regard that you know charlie sits up at night as Grandpa Joe tells him these stories of like, you know, all these chocolates started coming out full blast and all of this stuff. And it it does, it does seem to indicate that even before the tickets become the thing that like within this universe, chocolate is a pretty big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Cause you see all the kids racing out of school to go to the local candy store. It's like going to the and bar then and you get their that... guy knows what they all want. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And then you have that famous, the candy man song and yeah, the candy yeah, man, that's like the first big song. Right. And, um, so there is something about the, the, the really valuable role of sweets or of chocolate in this world. Oh, well, just real quick. What you were saying before, Raymond, makes me think of the contemporary reaction to a lot of superhero films in that there's a genre of things that have been historically created to make kids and young people happy um, that adults get a hold of and kind of ruin and make the discourse around them unfun. Because, for example, are you going to no, talk about Disneyland again? Is this is no, this, this the Disney video? Is... But no, never, <laughs> never. But I'm just going to say, I don't think there's 11 year olds who are like, and I just think the fact that No Way Home isn't getting nominated for an Oscar is indicative of blah blah blah. No, they're just like, this is a fun thing we like. But then it's like dudes our age that are just like, this is bullshit. And I think that the film shows how you you make a thing to make kids happy. And then the, the grownups get a hold 100%. of it and they fucking ruin it. And then mm. they're ruining it even infects the minds of the kids eventually. But th- I don't I know. Was, I was just thinking that when you were talking, Raymond. No, I was just that, – that's perfectly on the same track. What I was going to say is that referring to your notion of, of his work as being art for art's sake and, you know, if he's able to commodify it, all the better. But there is this sense when you're watching this that does kind of like you kind of hit the nail on the head that – I think one of the sort of mysteries at the center of this film is this notion of what if company, but good, what if corporation, but not cynical, you know, what, like, 
Mm. there there is that that notion of um you know we talked about this on culture binge regarding spotify of like why do we want companies to be good why do we expect companies to be good like we we know how they operate we know that they're they're oriented towards their bottom line at all times and i think you do see a lot of that in the discourse surrounding uh superhero flicks um that there is this kind of like this notion of well you know disney Disney makes these movies. They're for families. They're they're for kids and 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 uh, young adults alike and what have you. And hell, that just recently, the Disney getting into this whole uh, kerfuffle surrounding the 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 "Don't Say Gay" bill in Florida, and a lot of people sort of shaking their fist at Disney, like how how could you turn on us when we've we've supported you and stuff like that. And it, and obviously, not to excuse Disney or any major corporations uh, giving money to reprehensible politicians, but it is one of those things where you have to take a step back and, and go, well, what did we really expect? And this movie kind of imagines a world that, like, the possible enslavement of Oompa Loompas notwithstanding, the people who are pulling the strings and creating culture are doing it out of a sense of joy and out of a, a sense of real enthusiasm rather than just pure bottom line cynicism and you know uh, what however you want to describe it another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If we could talk a little bit about this idea that like the adults are the corrupting influences, doesn't that, that really kind of hits, uh, or, or there's that song where they talk about like who's to blame and it's like the mother and the father Maybe are to blame. The mother and the father. Yeah, when Ver- when Veruca bites it. So so it's almost like so there's a morality tale here, but in some ways the kids are already corrupted, right? So the kids are already corrupted, or at least these kids are corrupted, right? I don't know if we're meant to think that that all the kids, like in Charlie's classroom, for example, are corrupted, but these kids as being like the representations of whatever the kind of vice is that they're what is it so you've got gluttony augustus with is augustus gluttony. yeah veruca is what's greed. what's veruca's greed yeah violet mike is TV? pride mike tv is sloth um in the book okay. charlie is kind and of grandpa joe lost. is lost oh well what i was about to say is it, yeah. in the book charlie's kind of positioned as lust while grandpa oh. joe is positioned as envy because the way that the way that the mm. book describes charlie's relationship with chocolate like he he gets like one chocolate bar a year and he keeps it under his pillow and he just takes a nibble each night and he just like lets it melt on his tongue. It's 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 weirdly graphic. Like he'll go up to the wrought iron gates mm-hmm. of the factory and just like stick his face through and just smell in the air. It's just, it's very, very sensual. Um, and I've always interpreted Wonka as being wrath to complete the seven deadly sins. In the movie, it's uh, uh, it, it kind of elides some of those aspects of it, and I I sort of see Charlie as envy in this, where you know when he wanders in to talk to his mom, and he says, you know, uh, there's only two tickets left, and uh, if, if you think it's going to be me, you can count me out, and it's it, and there's there's very clearly this 
as Grandpa Joe gasses him up to believe, like, you want it more mm. than anybody, that you deserve it more than anybody. Mm. And there's a, a clear sense of, I don't think, misbegotten envy that he has towards these kids yeah. for whom it's so easy not just to find a golden ticket, because that seems to happen almost at random, um, but it's so easy for them to throw away hundreds of dollars chasing a golden ticket. And that's really what it's all about in in a way. That's why Slugworth's, mm. you know, offer to Charlie feels like, oh, well, this might gain some purchase because he is a kid who who thinks so much about his family and he he prioritizes them. His first payday goes and buys a loaf of bread and then offers to buy his, his fucking slug-a-bed grandfather tobacco. <laughs> like, he's just a great kid. Mm. And you you could 100% see him doing that for the greater good because as far as he knows, it's either security for my family a or lifetime, lifetime supply, supply of chocolate. chocolate. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't really mean all that much to me. My family is what means a lot to me. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever think that Slugworth... Yeah, I did wonder... Oh, God, Austin. Go ahead. Yeah, no. It's gonna no, be go really ahead. stupid, but I, I I kept thinking during it that Slugworth really looked like someone that like left Germany for Argentina in like 1944 and like missed the Nuremberg trials and just like came back and found a job at a chocolate factory. And do just, you like... know about? Do you know about this? No. Do you know who the the picture is in the paper? No. The, the fake ticket winner. No. That no. is Martin Bormann, personal secretary of Adolf Hitler. What? And at the time this movie was made, he was believed to be at large. He was tried in absentia at Nuremberg and obviously found guilty, sentenced to hang. His remains weren't found. They were found in Berlin, I think, like a year after this movie was made. And then they were they were ID'd a couple decades later. Holy shit. And hmm. there, there is this... Um, like, even to the point that the picture of him in the newspaper, it, he's in a Nazi uniform and they just airbrushed out the, the Reichsleiter insignia. Um, and there is a degree to which this movie is in conversation with that history. Like, I'm not convinced that the Wonkatania isn't a reference to the Lusitania, which mm -hmm. I know is World War One, but uh, mm. like... The, in um, in the chocolate room, when uh, uh, Augustus and or when Augustus goes up the pipe and his mom is ushered out, uh, Wonka calls after her through the desert lies the promised land, That's, which is yeah. a, a reference to Moses. <laughs> like it's and saying that to a German woman and and like. It, mm. it takes place in Munich, and we've talked about how it, it creates this wonderful sense of like a fairy tale that's this Neverland where it's it's very clearly Germany, but everyone speaks English, and then he has a British teacher. But there is something like very menacing about like the facade that they built around the factory that they built Wonka's factory over. Like the wrought iron gates are like maybe I'm reading too much into it, but because the movie is in direct conversation with like atrocities that Germany has committed, it yeah. does feel evocative of, of like concentration camps in a concentration way. Concentration camps. Interesting. It does. Mm. It does seem kind of pointed when you watch it through that lens. Then again, a lot of that stuff may be a sort of natural byproduct of architectural trends at the time. Um, but mm. there, it's so funny that you mentioned that Michael, because the, the movie has like, not only a very dark streak in it, but it has like a deeply, like deeply dark, acidic sense of humor regarding the history of its parent country. Wow. Sometimes mm. in life on a podcast, you should interrupt to say something dumb so that Raymond will then <laughs> go another <laughs> layer deeper on what's going on in this film. But it is, it, it is like a very, it, it, 
when and when you read interviews with Mel Stewart regarding, for example, the Martin Borman reference in this, to him, he was just like, oh, no, there were just like people would make jokes all the time about like, oh, Martin Borman's in Chile, Martin Borman's in Paraguay, Martin Borman's at the top of Mount Everest or whatever. And to him, it was like, oh, it's just kind of like a reference. We just put it in there because we thought it was funny, but no one ever got it. And mm. but there, there is I don't know if it's a subconscious thing or once again, I've seen this movie a hun- over 100 times and I'm just constantly looking for a new lens through which to view it. But there's it, it's having a weird conversation with history. And, and so how much of this stuff is directly attributable to the vision of the filmmakers versus the book? Um, I mean, all the stuff that I just referenced is 100% attributable to the filmmakers. Um, I mean, the book, the book is, you know, the broad strokes are the same, um, but the book is kind of a, it's, it's a fine book, but it's, it's a bit of a dalliance. It, it doesn't like, it, it doesn't yeah. get too deep into it. It doesn't, it doesn't peel the things apart. It's not trying too much to scare you and such. It's just, it's just a very fun kind of fantasy. Um, but yeah, I would I, I would say if if anything, it's it's largely attributable to uh, to the filmmakers. I did I did want to say something interesting about you know we were talking about Charlie maybe being emblematic of envy, and talk about how this is one of the problems with overt moralism is that when you establish like these absolutes that envy is somehow um, one of the kind of great sinful tendencies what you end up getting is you sort of getting like a real a real weak understanding of where envy comes from so charlie's envy or charlie's lust charlie's desire isn't just some sort of lust as we might think of it as like desiring what your neighbor has purely from resentment because you want to empower yourself because you're trying to ascend the ladder. Like for him, I feel like there's a little bit more of um, a a felt sense, maybe not conscious, but like a felt sense that that they're getting the raw end of the deal, right? And, and I think that when envy comes from that source, I don't think it's necessarily something that we should critique, whereas the moralist critique is that it is somehow bad it's like a weakness like don't be envious just accept what you have and therefore it can turn into like a pacifying um kind of suppressor right like oh don't be envious don't desire and then you don't really get to actually examine like what are the the reasons why what are the kind of structural cultural societal political reasons why you know we can't really afford a loaf of bread and we eat cabbage soup every day sort of thing and you know um i think that that actually, if we can kind of broaden it out, we can look at actually Charlie has a real, I think, legitimate reason to be envious or legitimate reason to have a complaint. And how the complaint comes out with his desire for more, his desire for something else, I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. And that's why sometimes the moralist critique or the moralist angle, I think, can be dangerous. You yeah, know? and it's interesting the difference between perceiving something as envy and perceiving something as let's say like a desire for justice or a response to systemic injustice and i think there's yeah. a way to read charlie and his and his family of of bedridden grandparents who clearly all fuck as that <laughs> <laughs> there's no way man they can't get it up well, they, it is one of those maybe things. the grandmas maybe the grandmas just go to town but the grandpas they're just they're, they're impotent in every way <laughs> Um, it, it is one of those things that envy weirdly though, I don't, I don't think the movie is, 
moralizing in a way that negates Charlie's desire. Because I think envy is one of those sins that requires an activator. You know, it's like that Eddie Izzard bit where she talks about like, why why in the Ten Commandments does it say I shall not want my neighbor's ox? I'm not going to steal it. I'm not going to kill it, blah, blah, blah. And it is one of those things of like, well, it could it could instigate something bad in you is the the idea surrounding envy as uh, as an immoral emotion. And when Charlie takes a sip of the fizzy lifting drinks, which is let's be you know straightforward at Grandpa Joe's urging, it's it is not his his idea, um, but you do get a sense as he's going through it from. From the moment he starts the tour and Grandpa Joe says, you know, sign away, Charlie, we have nothing to lose. And uh, e- even um, the way that they talk about Charlie, uh, the way that his his mom and, and Grandpa Joe talk about him when they think he's sleeping and they say, well, just let him have one last good dream. This This is Charlie's last good dream, this tour through the factory. Like, this might be the last uncomplicatedly happy day of his life, and he wants to seize it for all it's worth. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But when he transgresses, it is it is something that he has to either, um, like Grandpa Joe says, he has to commit to being a villain, commit to the heel turn, or he can redeem himself. And I would argue that each of the kids have the same moment. They each have that same opportunity where that choice is put in front of them, where they have the impulse to transgress. And certainly they don't, they don't have the grace of the, you know, floating back down from the, the sharp <laughs> fan and what have you. Um, you know, they don't really have the grace of a second chance, but they do have the, the grace of free will. And each of them choose to transgress. And they don't really seem all that upset about it, even when they're kind of like called back from the edge. It's, inter- it's really <laughs> interesting that you say that because watching it, I was at one point because I get really caught up in a sort of an Old Testament desire for strict fairness sometimes. I was like, no, he, he, they need to go too. Everyone else took something and they just got booted. And Grandpa Joe and Charlie are just getting away with this tomfoolery. There's there's a part of me that would thought that was a little bit weird. But I, I get what you're saying that like they were at least Charlie was the only one who could like recognize that and, and show a desire to move on. But still something a little weird that they're the only ones who got away with it. Well, yeah, I did wonder that when, when, like, when would Veruca have been able to redeem herself? I think, I think the idea is, is obviously the film is very, it's leading us in a particular way, but Veruca, Violet, Tommy, or Mike TV, like none of them, Tommy TV, um, TV. Mike TV, none, Tommy TV, none of them even, they just leaned hard into their villain status, right? Mm -hmm. They leaned hard (laughs) into their villainy. There was no, there was no consciousness in them. Charlie's the only character that has a consciousness, that has an awareness of one, who he is, um, where his family are at, and maybe how things could change. Whereas the rest of them, they've just, they've just bought into whatever their archetype is. Well, they didn't give a fuck. They, they brazenly transgressed in front of everyone as they were told not to, at least Charlie had to be kind of egged into it by his weird grandpa. (laughs) <laughs> you, you say that, but I, I think there are exceptions. You know, um, uh, Augustus is, he's called back from the edge of the river several times and he just leans in deeper and deeper. Um, you know, Violet is given plenty of opportunities. Wonka has her ear and he says, I wouldn't do that. I really wouldn't. Like he, like, he asks her not to and she still transgresses. Does she know she'll turn into a blueberry? No, 
But I, I think if she did know she'd turn into a blueberry, the option wouldn't really be on the table. If she really believed him, she wouldn't do it. And that's like the 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 sort of tension of free will in a way. Um, you know, Veruca, who lasts longer than most of the children, has seen firsthand what happens when you step out of line and she still has no compunction about stepping away out of line. And then Mike TV sees firsthand what the actual consequences of the thing he's about to do are. He will be burst into a million little pieces and then reassembled extremely small. <laughs> and, he, and he signs up for it as fast as humanly possible. He has a good spirit about it, though. He comes back tiny and he's just oh, like, he's no, cool. this is cool, mom. This rips. Let's keep, let's go. <laughs> yeah. I kind of respect. He at least committed, like, after some of the other ones. Ones, dealt with the consequences got a little comeuppance they were no mike tv is just like i'm good let's let's keep going <laughs> yeah tommy yes. tommy tv oh, tommy tv one sorry of my, one of my favorite no, moments no, no. is when when <laughs> no. tommy is when tommy tv is in his mom's purse and as wonka is walking her away he's swinging the purse behind his back just like centrifuge clearly asks him like if this goes wrong am i liable and he's like no no you're, you're not gonna be held liable is that the line yeah. you referenced before? What was your favorite line that, that killed you during it? When early on, when Charlie's mother says, just casually, with the four of you bedridden for the last 20 years, done. I was done. <laughs> I, uh, talk about yada yada and something just like, you know, with the four of you in bed for 20. Like, what? And I you forgot about that. And I just found that so funny. I reround once to hear it again because I loved it so much. When when they made this movie, Jack Albertson was like sixty seven years old, which means at the ripe old age of like forty seven, he just tucked in and was done. Just that's it, man. Crazy. And then he, I, he, I did yeah. want to know: Does the book give us indication like what's wrong with them? <laughs> um, um, no, not really. They I have mean, rickets. Maybe they're mal malnutrition, so they've got like you know <laughs> malnourished. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. I'm cabbage I, soup. I, man. I can't remember if the book gets into. I imagine that a children's book wouldn't want to get into like anyway they all have polio so as we were saying um but i yeah i don't i don't remember if they uh if they interrogate that too closely well, I don't think it's they do. very funny right after the, when the mother explains the situation when grandpa joe's like as soon as i get my strength back it's like oh really <laughs> really that's that's gonna happen because you've been on your back for 20 years but yeah you're gonna back. well he quit smoking it's the tobacco that's kept him in bed but now he's quit so now his body's gonna start rejuvenating wow. well if the you floor know? wasn't so cold you know it's but just a litany of cold. excuses right. but as soon as his grandson finds a golden ticket that sucker is some he turns into a spring chicken Oh That's right. God. He's an opportunist. Maybe Gra and I love how Grandpa Joe's song is about how he's got a golden ticket, not like we've got a golden ticket. Yeah. Like, but it's all about I've got a golden ticket now. I mean, and of course, yeah. what's the golden ticket? The guy, I, I don't know. It's that to fulfill his arc that he can. But get imagine out of if bed you're the now. other grandpa. He just has to. Oh, be it's like, brutal. Shit, man. That's just yeah. a real and rough look for him. It's this weird thing where not only not only Charlie clearly favors Grandpa Joe, but even his boss, Mr. Joe Peck, is like, oh, say hi to your Grandpa Joe. It's like, okay, yeah. like, Dude. how do you know him? It's not like he comes to the newsstand or anything. Quick, yeah, quick question. Have either of you in your childhoods, did you ever see both of your grandpas in the same place at the same time, or were they always kept separate? Um, always kept separate. They live in different cities, so I think maybe once at like a wedding or something. Yeah, I just, I think my two, I don't have any grandparents anymore, but my, I don't think I ever saw them in the same place. And I think it would no. have shocked me to, to know that these <laughs> men, and because I'm thinking like, you know, did they know, like, did, did grandpa Chuck know that grandpa George was my favorite? 
You know, did he have that sense, or does, does every grandpa assume they're dead? They'll tell it. You know, Chuck Perriano, piece of shit, hated him. George Burns, great guy. But um, <laughs> I just, had a grandpa Chuck too. See there, you, did he suck or was he a, was he a good? Uh, he <laughs> died before I was born. Was it, oh. was your grandpa? So he was. George he was Burns? definitely not in the same room. Not yeah. that George Burns, so, but it sucked okay. as a kid because he was like about the same age as George Burns, and it was like around that time in say. history. Yeah, <laughs> um, I have three George Burnses in my family. Uh, in total they just really committed to the bit of wanting to be associated with someone who is famous Can I get one r- random quick thing about the film too i wondered and this to me this yeah. read like an austin joke when the psychoanalyst yells at the patient <laughs> and tells him his dream is real when the patient is like you know i had this dream about the ticket and, the, and he's like tell me where it is and he's like but it's just a dream and he's like i don't care to me it just sounded like a zizek joke or something the idea that like the 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 patient has this dream or this fantasy and the most disturbing thing for them would be that the fantasy is confirmed as real and treated as such what what I was, a moment i was trying i know i was trying to watch this film with my fucking my my psychoanalytic hat on and i was trying to think like what do they really want they don't really want the lifetime supply of chocolate right that's not the true desire here the act the the revelation is is that what they want is as raymond said earlier the golden ticket but Mm -hmm. why it's not because they can get the lifetime supply of chocolate is it for prestige or is it so that just like the the system can continue and they can like reinforce themselves in their pattern like i mean i think for like i I was trying to think about that like when she's like i have to be in first like everything about Veruca yeah. is about the pure symbolism of being first, best, most special, whatever it might be. And it seems like for Augustus, it's like consumption. He has the most access to the most consumption and, and even just having access to that level of consumption is, is what it's about. Whether it's chocolate or whether it was like knockwurst. My guy just wants to eat stuff. <laughs> yeah, you don't get the sense that Augustus was really even looking that hard. <laughs> like, no, it just maybe kind of fell into his lap. Um, you know, eating eating is his hobby, as his mom says, and it's just like one of those things you could imagine him like finding yeah. the golden ticket like with a bite out of it already, and like, oh shit! Look See, at that. I kind of I kind of thought they were like German aristocrats. That's kind of how I thought that they were, because it looks like they're in like this fancy chalet. But aren't they? You know, they're they're in, like, the mount- meat entrepreneurs. I think it says like their family is like a they they're, they're involved in oh, okay. meat production somehow, or like sausage production or something. Yeah. Like that. Okay. Okay, yeah. So maybe they had like a, a similar setup to like what Veruca's dad had, where it's just like a fucking assembly line of of just like people shelling them, packers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's such okay. that's such a great scene where she's standing above, just lording over all of those people working themselves yeah. to the bone. And if you find and it, then, you get yeah, a one and the, pound and the raise. One I was, pound, a, I was about yeah. to say the way that they respond to the one pound bonus in their Lose pay packet. It. I think leans into uh, your interpretation that there is just like something vaguely maybe dystopian about this whole universe where it's just like I I don't know but that was something that I kind of glommed onto during this watch that was just like oh wow like that should be an insult but they're going crazy down there and it redoubles their effort all right let's go ahead and wrap up the discussion there um great film check it out um yeah I guess it. I guess it's on it's on Netflix for another week I think uh, I, that might be different via country but I know until the end of March it is available to stream on Netflix for me it was on Stan in Australia so if you're in Australia Stan yeah 
So, yeah, okay, so as we said, this was our second-to-last episode. Um, we are finishing up. Michael, can you just real quick say a little bit about what's the possibility of, like, a stream thing, just so people know what's going on? Like, what's what's this? Yeah, um, and it's very anomalous, but so, so and I, I think this has been explained. Uh, you might have heard this on this podcast, might have heard it on Culture Binge. If you're one of our patrons, um, you I, I did a long post about this. You can check on the Discord. Um so what the the push is to redouble efforts of having stuff on the actual YouTube channel. YouTube currently is emphasizing how they want more streaming. You know, they're trying to get some of like Twitch's corner. So what we're going to do is start testing out versions, um, you know, of Show Me the Meaning of Culture Binge. Not exactly, not one for one, but but versions of these things as streams um, that'll hopefully be uh, have a little bit more emphasis on interaction and conversation like obviously we'll we'll be have the chat open all that sort of stuff these will be starting in april i don't know a lot more past that right now because i think my focus has been making sure we get the best possible podcast we can for the rest of this month while we have them but there's going to be something and uh that that's that's what i can say for right now and we're going to have at least a couple of streams that will take place uh during the month of april and we will broadcast the info about that wide and far as soon as we have it. Yeah. Um, but that does mean, I mean, podcasts are done. So show me the meaning of the podcast. The weekly thing is done. Um, we don't even know if it's going to be called, like, show me the meaning or if it'll be whatever the fuck it is. But something's coming that we're going to try to do. Um, you know, Michael is Michael is trying to, to figure something out with, um, with the higher-ups so that we can at least be, I guess, like, still coming to you and producing some kind of content. Yeah, we're, we're trying to make, so, make yeah. something happen. And I think the, for anyone listening, I think the most important thing, at least from my perspective right now, is making sure that we do not eradicate a really important line of connectivity between the audience and, and us. And that we do not move away from having um, room for conversation, dialogue, interaction, all that sort of stuff. Um, and whether that's conversation and dialogue between host and guest, and between host and guest and the audience, I think that's one of the most important things from my perspective. And it's just a matter of like, and again, I think I made this clear in some places. Uh, I went on a tweet storm about the finances. Like a lot of this comes down to money. If we do the streams and they work well and we're not losing money on them, we'll be able to expand out and do cool stuff. If we try them for a few months, no one shows up. They're not, we're not liking them. They're not making money. They're going to stop. Um, I don't like that reality, but that's the, the reality of the world we live in. Yep. 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 Um, with that said, um, you know, Michael earmuffs, um, but Raymond and I are going to be doing a film podcast. We've actually been talking about it for a while. Um, it's going to be a little bit different than show me the meaning, but, um, we can tell you more about it probably next episode, which will be the last Show Me the Meaning episode. But um, for now, Raymond, is there like a 20-second teaser that you can give people just to let them know how it's going to be different, but then maybe also how Show Me the Meaning fans will kind of dig it? Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about how, despite having great conversations each week on this show, there are some times where we feel like we'll hit on a really rich vein and then we'll have to kind of wrap things up. And over the past couple of weeks, 
even before the news came down that uh, Show Me the Meaning was ending, Austin and I had started talking about possibly doing a show that was more based around creating a greater historical, cultural, philosophical narrative where we can kind of track the progression of certain genres, certain trends in the film industry, and certain filmmakers as individuals across their careers in a way that would allow us to kind of pull at the same threads for a little while longer and develop kind of a um, uh, a, a more of a, a tapestry of film history rather than kind of jumping around from movie to movie to movie. Um, so we'll... Um, We'll, we'll definitely still be talking a lot about movies because I'll be there and I'm sure we'll talk uh, quite a bit about philosophy because Austin will be there. But we want to, um, we, we want to give uh, the listeners something that, uh, you know, if, if Show Me the Meaning listeners stick with us on this new project, that still gives them, you know, what they come here for each week while also doing something new that really inspires us and that we're excited about exploring. Um, so uh, we're really hoping that you all uh, you all stick with us and, and stay tuned to our uh, our social media accounts and stuff like that as um, as we make this transition and uh, hopefully we can make a go of it and uh, who knows maybe have a, a certain uh, Mr. Burns on as a guest from time to time. Guys, I still can't hear. Can I listen again? Someone just nod and I'll come uh-huh. back. Okay, <laughs> great. I assume whatever they said uh, okay. had nothing to do with promoting a non-Wisecrack <laughs> podcast on this feed. That would be just inappropriate in breach of the many contracts they've signed. We have my the lawyers are on it. The the it's oh my god, I can't believe it. Just kidding. Excited for whatever it is. Charlie Day is my lawyer. He's going to go toe to toe with y'all lawyers. It in is a matter bird of law, bird law. So you um, know, but great. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. and then listen. Uh, the, the last one's going to cool. be a doozy. And just a reminder uh, not to get it on your corner at all. Um, we're going to be live streaming the finales of both podcasts. So um, when we figure out exactly when the final episode of Show Me the Meaning is going to record, um, producer Matt will make sure on all the socials um, we get the the time and link out there. It'll also you know stream from the YouTube page. So if you subscribe to the YouTube page and you get alerts, You'll get that alert, um, and then depending on what everyone's schedule is for that, you know, hopefully there's a we can save a little time at the end for some Q and A interaction with the chat. We, you know, we can stop recording at that point, but you know, we'll see what everyone's schedule is like. <laughs> awesome. Let's go ahead and wrap things up. Where can people find you on the internet, Michael? Um, Wisecrack, um, and at Michael O'Burns on on some of those social medias. All right, Raymond. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Feel free to uh, swing by, pop a quarter in, and we'll see if I have any more Willy Wonka trivia for you. And I'm Austin underscore Hayden on Twitter, AUS underscore H-A-Y on Insta. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. Uh, we just released a new episode. We just released a new episode um, on uh, the war in Ukraine. The last two episodes, we've kind of discussed that, and uh, we had a really amazing international relations scholar on. And the last episode, this episode was more like a follow-up, and also kind of looking into a, a recent article by Slavoj Žižek um, on the war in Ukraine. So check that out, Owls at Dawn. We love you. We'll see you next week for the grand finale. Raymond, send us out. Uh, yeah, in, in light of the uh, the recent news regarding Show Me the Meaning, I'm, I'm going to send us out with a bit of a paraphrasing from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. We must remember that there are many more important things in this world than movie podcasts. Many more important things. 
Offhand, I can't think of what they are, but I'm sure there must be something. <laughs>